This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. It's a privilege for me to uh, invite into our studio today to be a part of this uh, Table Podcast. Uh, Dr. Daryl Bach, who serves as our Senior Professor of New Testament Studies, as well as the Executive Director of our uh, newly initiated uh, Center for Cultural Engagement. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Shahad uh, from uh, Jordan, uh, the President of the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, who will join us uh, via Skype and uh, our technology. And uh, Dr. Scott Harrell, who uh, serves as a Professor of Systematic Theology, uh, Theological Studies, uh, here at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for spending the time uh, with us today. Uh, our topic that we would like to address is uh, the unique challenges in Bible translations, and especially uh, the challenges that have surfaced in uh, recent years of uh, translating the Word of God into cultures where uh, some terms uh, that we hold dear theologically, uh, biblically, may not be understood and may, in, in fact, cause offense in certain cultures. And so uh, uh, both Daryl, you and Scott and Ahmad, uh, all three of you have been involved in uh, translating and uh, uh, being involved in uh, the issues of translation. Uh, Daryl, let me ask you to kick it off. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges that uh, a translator faces as they get ready to present the Word of God in a receptor language? Well, the main issue is, and there's an expression that translators like to cite when they work on translations, that every translation is a lie, which is a strong way of saying that you have the problem of um, languages don't overlap entirely in the same way. So whenever you render something into another language, you're 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 explaining, but you also may be losing something. And even though the the little proverb is a little is certainly a hyperbole and an exaggeration, every translator recognizes that when they move from one language to another, they are losing nuance when they do that. So the issue is always when I have three, four, or five ways of expressing what an idea is, which one loses the least, if I can say it that way, which, which, which brings over the most, um, the most referent, the, the, the refers to the thing in the most uh, accurate way, even though it may not be a precise overlap. And so that's why uh, translations uh, have challenges. That's actually why you get many translations. The reason you get many translations, some languages like English are blessed with, with multiple translations, and the reason you do this is because at certain spots you have to put one thing in the text. But in fact, there may be two or three different expressions that all give something about what is being expressed in the original language, and you have to make the decision which one of these carries the most freight in the best way. That's the challenge of the translator, and that's why sometimes you get translations and then in the margin you'll get a note that says or, because they're communicating to you a little bit of uncertainty about the precision of the translation, and the alternative helps you to see the breadth of what it is that you're translating. 
Uh, the United Bible Society says there are about 6,600 languages in the world. And of those, 25 to 2,600 have something of the scriptures. So the task is far from being done. You can imagine uh, how many words in a tribal language, for example, have, have no equivalent, vir- almost no equivalent, uh, as we look at the biblical text and try to put it into their language. And even in, in, in Arabic, certain terms like son of man, at least in some idioms, I should say, that are out there, son of man really means an illegitimate child. So as Jesus goes around calling himself son of man, uh, the strong word is, is bastard. And if that's put into another translation, then, then you can imagine the horrific uh, uh, way that a person would read that in another culture. Even the term Holy Spirit is often taken to be the angel Gabriel. So when the angel Gabriel says to Mary, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be with child, the, the interpretation of that is immediately disastrous. So there are, and that's, that's, uh, that's with Arabic or, or Muslim idiom translation. So when we talk of son of God or father, are we talking biological? Are we talking social relational father? How, how are these kinds of terms translated? That's tough. And that's the problem is that underneath the term, there, there's, there, like I say, there's fright that comes with it that isn't expressed in the word but is expressed culturally through that word. And so the question is when you render it, will you trigger all those associations or, or not? And so you, you're wrestling with getting a rendering that, that brings this little uh, static, if I can say it that way, if I can use a figure, brings this little static with it that gets in the way of the meaning as is possible. And sometimes those choices are difficult. And they're not just uh, word choices. At times it's, as I understand it, like in Ethiopia, it's even conceptual mm-hmm. where theological uh, truth, the way we would explain it, uh, has overtones that uh, don't represent it in the same way in a particular language or a particular setting. Uh, Ahmad, uh, other than the Son of God, which obviously has raised the discussion in translation, from an Arabic perspective, are there other phrases that you have encountered, uh, knowing both English and Arabic, living in a, uh, an Arab context in the Middle East and ministering uh, widely beyond the Middle East, uh, other challenging phrases before we address the issue of Son of God and how that should be translated uh, that might illustrate the challenge of translation as well? One main one is the word Allah itself, hmm. you know. Um, in other words, um, in, the, in, the, um, in the Arabic Bible that Christians have used for centuries, um, the word Allah is the word used for God, you know, so Allah, Allah created the heavens and earth in the beginning. Allah created the heavens and earth, and for Allah so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Allah is a word used by Christians to refer to the true God, yet Muslims use the same uh, word. Uh, yet we are um, it's, uh, we're talking about a, a different per- perspective on who this God is. So um, is it right to translate it uh, Allah? That's a question often raised, to translate us or God as Allah in those Christian scriptures. So in, in several countries that are non-Arabic speaking, there's a, a strong movement asking Christians not to use the word um, Allah for, for, for God in the, in the Bible. 
Um, yet, actually, the, the word Allah uh, was there when Islam came, and so it was really used, and it really comes from the uh, Aramaic um, original that was the lingua franca back then. So Jews and Christians naturally used the word Allah, which is the uh, Aramaic, and this was actually the word Jesus would have used. Uh, so it's really uh, a Christian Jewish word, not a, a Muslim world word. Um, originally, and, and so uh, Islam came and took that same word, only they defined um, this Allah in a different way. So you're, in a way, in essence, you have, um, you have the same subject, but a, a different predicate, uh, in, in a sense. And that, that's where the issue becomes difficult. So um, when that's communicated, that we're talking, uh, the word Allah was really a, a Christian Jew word used before Islam, it, it eases things and makes it much simpler to talk about the attributes of this this God we're talking about. Uh, Ahmad, isn't one of the issues here that when you, when you, I mean, if we look back, we can look at the etymology, the roots of the word, that's one, but then the other part of it is this freight idea that I was talking about, what comes with the word. And so when you say the word Allah and you say it to a Jew or a Christian, there is a relational dimension to this God that is the fright, if I can yes. use the figure, that comes with it. Whereas in Islam, if you use the word Allah, that personal relational dimension is is significantly diminished if, if completely absent. And if God is is so sovereign and so detached that uh, yes. that and so there's this background to the word, and that's part of what people are wrestling with when they when they even raise the question about whether to use the word or not. Isn't that part of what's going on in the in the tension between the choice of using or not using a given word like Allah? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And I, I missed the first part. The connection was gone, so I didn't quite hear you. Well, all that I was saying was that there's a background to the word that 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 when Christians and Jews use it, that there's a relational dimension to this God and the way He interacts with His creation that isn't a part, uh, generally speaking, of Islamic theology. Uh, uh, God and Islam is a much more sovereign and and detached. I mean, the, the whole idea of Islam pointing to the idea of submission shows how non-relational uh, uh, we're looking at the concept of God. So it's it, it's not the word. It's not even the letters it's it's what comes it's all everything that comes within what you're evoking when you use the word we just lost him maybe i can speak that a little bit uh, Mideslav wolf is known as a trinitarian scholar yet his recent work has been seeking to bridge politically sociologically ethically but theologically also into the islamic world and his uh 2011 book, Allah, A Christian Response, seeks to establish a commonality around the concept of God. This bridges out of uh, at least two seminars that they have hosted at the Center for, for Faith and Culture at Yale University. Uh, a second book is just coming out right now, Do We Worship the Same God, Choose Christians and Muslims in Dialogue? And various contributors to that, Wolf simply the editor there. Uh, a lot of emphasis is currently then being given on on the general concept of God is is parallel, certainly. Uh, I'm a little concerned at how far some back away to finally say, but we're Trinitarian, so it's not the same God. That needs to be a little closer to the front, I think. But they are at least saying, you know, look at the 99 names of God. In many respects, they do parallel what, what Muslims and Christians together believe. But I think Imad will have a very uh, uh, insightful uh, word here for us as well. Uh, 
While we're working on the connection, let me jump in. Uh, in talking with lay folks who stumble over because of the confession of faith of the Muslims, you know, there's no God but Allah, and uh, Muhammad is the prophet, his prophet. Uh, I like to use the letters God. We have God of the Philistines. You know, we have the Babylonian gods. Uh, in Jonah, they call, the sailors called on their gods. Uh, so we use G-O-D, and we're happy in English translations to use G-O-D for both the true God and the false gods. And as Paul says, though there be many that are called gods, there is just one God. Uh, it's not in the letters. It is in the meaning. Uh, but we also talk about uh, the theology of Islam. And nobody objects to using Theo with the uh, study of. And so even we, we're using the term for God in other contexts when we don't mean the God of the Bible. And so just as a translation issue, you know, I think uh, the background is very helpful to understand uh, the Aramaic and how it came in even before Islam became a religion, uh, to know that just the word is not the problem, the, the meaning and what is associated with that meaning becomes the the issue, and and therefore the need for clarification. Yeah, let me let me try see if I can use an illustration that has nothing to do with theology, but may get at what we're talking about. If you use the word father and you talk to someone who had a loving, compassionate, kind father, that automatically brings all kinds of associations with it. But let's say you use that word with someone whose father was abusive and was violent, etc. Then then with that terminology comes all kinds of associations that are very different than the associations that the first person has. And so the tension that you're dealing with here is what do you evoke in, in the person who's hearing this word when you use the term? Well, some of it, it has nothing to do with, if I can say it, the linguistics of the word. It has to do with what's beyond that and, and how they are, if I can say it, translating this word or the context in which they place the word some of which is rooted in their own experience and the way they have framed the concept of the word that you're using. And that, that's a confusing way to say it at one level, but I think that helps to get at the tension that you're dealing with. You evoke certain things by the use of a word, and the question is, are you evoking so much stuff, static is what the figure I've used earlier, that you actually are getting in the way of communicating what it is you're trying to say by the word as opposed to what it is you intend to communicate by the word choice. But if you change the word, how do you reconstruct the very biblical image? That's the of other father? half of it. That's the other half of it. And, and that's 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 the translator's dilemma. I mean, I think yeah. that it's important to appreciate the nature of the problem before you talk about what what the best way is to address it. And and there is a real genuine tension here that I think everyone recognizes is a part of the situation. And then the question is, how do you best execute a philosophy of translation that that uh, accomplishes as much as you can mm -hmm. in in rendering from one language to another and hopefully you come up with a solution that that um, that avoids as much static as possible on the one hand and make sure that it has the bridges to the real concepts you're trying to communicate on the other those are the two things you're trying to to keep in balance as you work on this this episode is brought to you by the grace enough podcast 
I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Rick Brown has uh, written extensively. He's probably the leader, the, the one on the forefront of uh, alternative translations rather than the literal for the divine familial language, both father and son. He'll argue that in some tribal situations, father may be the, in one sense, the inseminator, the procreator of a child, but the child's de facto father would be an uncle or somebody else in, in, in the very familial structure of that tribe. So when you use one word that's used for a biological father, uh, in a way, that stands over against a social relational father, the one that raises and, and, in a sense, is the de facto father as we think a normal father ought to be. So these are difficult issues for, for translators, and we on the outside very often look on and are quick to criticize, not realizing how deep culturally these things go. Scott, uh, is there a difference in providing a translation for a track to get the gospel into a culture for the first time. Uh, with New Tribes and Wycliffe, they're on the forefront of putting language down that has never been put on paper before. So they're doing all of the linguistics, uh, all of the word meetings. They're developing the dictionary. They're developing the grammar mm -hmm. from what they are perceiving from within that culture. Should there, and is there, and should there be a difference between what we would say to get the gospel into that culture and a full-blown Bible translation that represents the best translation into that receptor language? I think there has to be. I mean, that's just uh, one of the criticisms against uh, S.I.L. Wycliffe has, has been this issue of moving some of the language to what they say is actually striking, as Daryl said, the very, the very understanding of, of a reader. But they've also said most of these aren't translations. They're, they're radio airtime or they're explaining the gospel in one kind of a form or another. Now, some of them are translations as well. But surely that has to come into it. Uh, when you're translating, though, that's the future of the church. That's bedrock authority for how we understand the Christian faith. So there's a long history of this. Uh, even you, you go back to the second century in the Diatessaron of Titian, what, in 160, with the, with the harmony of the Gospels, the literal translation of Son of God. You get to uh, the Peshitta, which is kind of the, the, the Aramaic or Syriac uh, uh, parallel to the Latin Vulgate, really still used today as the Latin Vulgate, very dogmatic translation of Son of God with Nicaea, the Confession of Trinity, and so much more that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, begotten but not made. That's tricky language, but it has been faithfully translated down through the centuries. We come to when Islam invades Palestine and, and further, you have uh, the patriarch Timothy over the Nestorian Church, who in 800 
had considerably more influence, if Peter Jenkins is right, than the Pope in Rome. I mean, it was an immense empire, yet as they translate scripture, they would do, do so quite literally. But when they would articulate what does this mean in debates, John of Damascus did the same thing a little further west. They would be using terms like word of God or spirit of God to describe Christ rather than son of God, which raised the barriers. And you see that kind of dualism going all the way through in the, in the Arabic world, for example. The Bible's been translated literally, but the explanation of that, even systematic theology, Apologies in a, in like in Cairo of uh, of uh, a Christian faith, but open for Muslims to read, would often use the other language. So we come to a time here recently, as we start talking about in the last forty years, dynamic equivalence. Uh, what then do we put in the actual translation? Have we created more barriers than than uh, than we need to, in terms of translating the Son of God, for example. We've got two things going on at the same time that I think it's important to keep on the table and distinct. Uh, with some translation work and with some of the work of some of these organizations, they're actually, if I can say it, creating or formulating what the theological language is. They are yes. walking into a culture and saying, and first they're trying to get it linguistically Catalog so that this is how the language works because it's all been done orally um, and giving it phonetics and all the rest of it and so they're creating they're creating the space in which theological language is going to function and then you've got the translation which is your theological language so you've got to figure out how to get those fused together well if we just look back at the history of our own of the church itself look at how long it took us to carve out our theological language for our concepts, like the Trinity. You know, that wasn't something that came overnight. That took several centuries to sort itself out. First, you had to have the language that you're going to work with, and then you had to decide which sets of terms cover the most ground the best. And, and that took councils, et cetera. So, so we've gone, you know, we've been here before. Uh, we've gone through this. And, uh, and I think sometimes a sense of that kind of history and the dynamics of what you're dealing with helps a person to appreciate what it is you're, you're, you're really wrestling with when you're doing this. Those two things, forming the very language out of which your theological expression is going to come and then deciding which theological language actually best does it, two separate steps, two very important steps, and two very complex steps. From the theologian perspective, what I think is a concern with uh, removing Son of God language is that you actually then almost promote the loss of the theological yes. truth as opposed to getting people closer to the theological truth by that translation. Some of my friends that I'm in dialogue with who are translators, uh, more or less on the other side if I can say it that way, but but they, they argue you cannot impose Nicene Trinitarianism on the text. Let the text speak for itself. The problem is sometimes they burn down the bridge to then get to, to right. clear Trinitarian theology. So it's that it's that tension between the two. Sometimes I think – well, to give you a little history here, it was Eugene Nida and a little bit later Charles Kraft in the 60s and 70s who were pioneering the area of dynamic equivalence. And translation has come a good long way since then. And, and, and it should be said right from the outset, every SIL, every Wycliffe, New Tribes – Every translation group I know of has a Trinitarian doctrinal statement. They confess Trinity, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. They're not backing away from that. So we're, we're talking about brothers here. Right. Let me 
put in a parenthesis, though, the UBS that draws a lot of these together has no doctrinal statement. So there are some that that uh, that may question whether they really believe in Trinity or not. But that's a little beside the point. The vast, vast numbers want to be faithful to Trinity. What they've found uh, in terms like Son of God and Father and certain other terms as well is that dynamic equivalence no longer is adequate. They've come to that conclusion. There are several theories out there, but one that seems to be coming to the fore, at least in SIL, is that of text and paratext. And Daryl touched on this a little bit. Like, we have a word in our text and then a footnote that will explain the meaning of that. Uh, so increasingly, that's the direction that seems to be uh, pioneering the future, which I think is a great, great solution. Yes. Now, do you put the, but which do you put in the text, particularly in a, in a Muslim idiom translation where Muslims reverence the word as, as their absolute? Do you put the dynamic equivalent term like beloved son or, or Messiah there rather than the more literal the son of God? And I argue, no, put the Son of God in the text, explain it in the paratext, mm -hmm. because the Muslim will read that text and take that as the absolute of God, and then the explanation below as, oh, that's what it means. I think that's it. The, the Net Bible may have had a uh, – It's a uh, paratext on steroids. <laughs> a paratext <laughs> on steroids that many, many of our faculty worked on. Yeah. And uh, maybe we were a little ahead of our uh, time <laughs> to say, here's the translation and here's the paratext that explains yeah. why we took that translation. Uh, maybe we blazed some trails we didn't know we were blazing with regard to that, that uh, product. It's but, actually uh, also a problem in English. I mean, this is, the, sure, the, the, with some of the discussions and debates that you've seen with Bible translations in English, my – complaint has been to some of the those translations that have caught flack has been you haven't used your notes enough to explain what it is that you're doing so that a person can see what the what the more literal rendering is and what it is that you've rendered so that, because that helps you to build that bridge that that always that always establishes the connection the dilemma of the translator is i have two or three expressions here each of which works to a degree. So which one gives me the takes the most weight? Well, the moment I put one in that text and I opt the others out, okay, I've lost something. So by having that paratext, by having that footnote, I, I can regain some of what I've lost, and I can I can cover my bases. And so that's the value of doing that that way. And and I think it is a good solution because some of the glosses, some of the alternatives that are put forward, like Messiah, to say Messiah is equivalent to Son of God actually um, clouds or fogs a major issue, which is that there is overlap between Son of God and Messiah because of the way it's used in the Old Testament. You know, the Second Samuel passage, I will be to him as a father and he will be to me as a son, said to Solomon um, as part of the Davidic covenant. There's an overlap there. But there is something unique about Son of God in the way it develops theologically that Messiah doesn't catch. And so if you just say Messiah, you have not said enough. This was my original criticism when this issue first came up and was brought across my desk, and I was communicating with the people who were doing the translating, and I was saying, I, I understand why you want to go to Messiah, and it, and it certainly does overlap, but it doesn't do enough. It doesn't build that bridge. 
to ultimately where you want to get with the concept. And that's part of what a translator wants to try and preserve. They want to preserve as much of the connections uh, of where a term is ultimately taking you as you possibly can when you render it. And what I'm hearing, Daryl, is that uh, uh, translators have acquiesced on that. I think almost all have said, you're right, Messiah isn't adequate. I would argue for, a, a you know, son or sons of God means many things in the scriptures, of course. Mm-hmm. Angels, that's divine right. counsel, exactly. uh, the Davidic son, but royal figures of various kinds. And so you come into the New Testament, and the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're just taking that vantage from the Old Testament, may not carry that much weight. But then you, you step into the Gospels. Matthew, for example, you have, not only will he be Emmanuel, God with us, mm-hmm. but you have, you have the baptism. This is my beloved Son. You have Satan, if you are the son of God, in the temptations in the wilderness, three times. And then immediately demons are crying out and say, what have you to do with us, son of God? And so as we get a little further on in the book, uh, like when Jesus calms the sea, and the disciples bow down in the boat and they worship him, worship him as the son of God. Centurion later on at the crucifixion, surely this is a or the son of God. So even in Matthew, and that's paralleled in Mark and Luke and Daryl's the expert on this, but you have, you have a canonical meaning that's being unpacked. And I would jump even quicker to the Gospel of John. There you have the prologue, which sets it up entirely. You know, the Word is God, and yet was with God. So you have a, a loose, already binitarian, if not trinitarian, structure being set, set forth. So when Nathaniel confesses Jesus as the Son of God, or later on in the same first chapter, then you have another confessing Jesus as the Son of God, John has already put the structure in place. And of course, John and the Gospels are likely written after books like Philippians that, that seem to have a Christology accepted in the church. There doesn't seem to be debate about these high Christological titles already in place. So it seems to me this canonical idea of what the biblical authors are doing, the synoptic authors as well as John, needs to be in focus as we uh, translate Son of God. So a final point here. I see words like Son of God being spokes in a wheel. If you translate it in a different way, even in the Old Testament, you begin to take out some of those spokes, all of which begin to coalesce around the axle of this eternal Son of God, feeding into the idea that's the larger big idea of Scripture that we dare not let go of. Yeah, I, th- I think that, and the tricky thing about this is, if I can say it that way, there are two ways to tell that story of how we get to our wheel, if I can say it. I can do it in terms of where the wheel ends up, what, what the wheel ends up being uh, in light of the totality of what's going on, or I can do it a step at a time to show how we get the wheel. And so I like to say it this way about the Gospels, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus from the earth up. They start pretty much with categories that we're used to, and then they push us to see that Jesus is more, so that when we go from Son of God, we eventually get to Son of God. You know, there's, there's something more happening. Uh, but John does it the opposite way around. He tells yes. it from heaven down. He tells you right from the start where he is starting, and then you fit that underneath it. Well, what we have tended to do in the what we've tended to do in the church is to put everything in the Johannine frame, and we've lost the ability of showing people how we go from a Jesus who works in categories we get to a Jesus who works in categories that we struggle to get. And we've lost how to tell the story of how to get from A to B. And yet three of our Gospels do it that way. 
And so we've got to uh, we've we've got to help the church in translations, etc., know how to present Jesus as a completely unique figure that is he's an unprecedented uh, part of the part of of our world and a uh, part of the creation who's both creator and and also incarnate. And so, how do you do that? And how do you help people to see this is a category completely unique to anything else that you will ever encounter? Um, and and of course that's what you run up against in, in in not just in Islam you run up against it in Judaism as well. Uh, how do you deal with this unique figure? And the scriptures mm-hmm. attempt to do that, and they come at it from both angles. And so we've got to keep our attention on the fact that it comes at it from both angles. Let me. This the term "son of man" does similar things. Mm-hmm. It's used for the prophet, mm-hmm. you know, Ezekiel. Uh, it's used uh, for a son of humanity, but as you move through, as you said, Scott and Daryl, uh, you both said it, as you move through the Gospels, what gets attributed to the Son of Man no longer is simply a human category, uh, the ability to forgive, uh, the one who can change the law, who can redefine the Sabbath, uh, who is coming back in glory. Uh, the, son, the term son of man becomes uh, a similar kind of fill, fill out of what the full meaning is. Have the translators struggled in these contexts with the, the phrase son of man as they have with son of God, or is it not as big of an issue? Well, as I mentioned, in some idioms at least, it means exactly what you don't want it to mean, an illegitimate child. Uh, I can't answer that entirely. Uh, what I do marvel at, we all know that Jesus uses that term of himself, what, maybe 80 times, uh, is that when he's standing before the Sanhedrin and they ask him, are you the Son of God, uh, Jesus says, yes, you say that I am, and, and yet maybe that's okay, but then when he compliments that and links it to Daniel 7, Son of Man, coming in glory and receiving dominion and power and honor and an everlasting kingdom and the nations will worship him, the Sanhedrin goes ballistic. They tear their clothes and scream out, he must be crucified. Jesus, in his own self-perception, draws those together. He links Son of Man and Son of God in the highest possible terms. I think that's that's the dynamite. That's the grenade rolling across the floor in the Sanhedrin. <laughs> and it's, and it's in very very much at, it's, it's very much at the end of the process of Jesus's disclosure about the term. Yes, right. the term itself is simply means a, uh, in, in an idiom when you detach yes. it from Daniel and everything else. It simply means a human being, the son of man, the son of Charles, the son of Jane. You know, it, it's it's a way of saying another human being. But then when he connects it to Daniel seven, which is the image of a human being riding the clouds. See, in the Old Testament, the only people who ride clouds are transcendent figures, right. and so that, and that's how I think Jesus chose the term because. Because it has this unique mix of what we're talking yeah. about that points to this uniqueness between humanity and transcendence, which is which is wedded together. And then when he when he associates it with the dominion and the rule and authority and all that, that is the grenade. I mean that that he, the fuse is lit and the lights going off and the explosion is happening. And he wasn't worried that that might be offensive. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And in fact, he knew it. He yeah. knew it. By the time we get to the last week of Jesus's life, he is pressing the leadership to make a call, and they make the mm-hmm. call. Uh, and so, uh, so from that standpoint, uh, that term it runs very, very, very parallel. I do think that the one difference that you have is that because you're kind of coming at it from below, if I can say it that way, son of man 
into deity, if you will, um, versus coming at it from above, um, where son of God, you know, um, that uh, that lessens the tension a little bit about what might be connoted with the terminology, and and so it doesn't quite it doesn't resonate to the level of a problem that you get with son of God. Join us next week for part two of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.